Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser, Senior Editor of ClearanceJobs.com. Thank you for joining us for the Security Clearance Careers Podcast. Today, we're talking about the creation of the National Background Investigations Bureau. The NBIB will take over the Security Clearance Background Investigations process. Joining us to talk about these changes is Charles Sowell. He's a Senior Vice President with Salient CRGT and a former advisor to the Director of National Intelligence. The announcement came out last week about the creation of this National Background Investigations Bureau. Can you just give me your initial thoughts on the creation of that? Do you agree with the decision? Is it something you kind of saw coming, or do you have any perspective there? I think the administration was in a position where they had to do something more than leave things in the status quo. You know, following a a number of high-profile issues uh, involving clearances, uh, background investigations, and, uh, you know, background investigation service providers, I wouldn't say that it's a surprise that the NBIB was stood up. Uh, I think, frankly, it's the culmination of a lot of years of hard work from a lot of people across government furthering and advancing security clearance reform initiatives, because having a bureau that focuses specifically on background investigations uh, with a political appointee at the head really brings some gravitas to the organization. And uh, I think that's really, really a good move. Okay, and so I was curious about that because we did have some criticism from some in our community saying, hey, wait, we wanted more, you know, as far as the creation goes. um, What's to keep this from just becoming another FIS, Federal Investigation Service, because it still falls under OPM, but you think having that political appointee, that sphere of influence will help? Uh, Absolutely. I think uh, people tend to forget that for any of its faults, the Federal Investigative Services have delivered millions and millions and millions of successful background investigations since the 1950s. Um, There's certainly been some high-profile issues, but uh, overall, I think the work that uh, FIS has performed is admirable. Uh, There's always room for improvement, no doubt about it. And I think that uh, every organization that's had a role in the background investigation process, whether it was the Defense Security Service at DOD uh, in the early 2000s, whether it was the Federal Investigative Services at OPM, whether it's the individual intelligence community uh, organizations that perform, in some cases, their own background investigations, All of them have been facing the same struggle of how do you deliver uh, timely investigations at high quality and for reasonable costs. And so I think that establishing the NBIB, which will represent a workforce that delivers about 95% of the background investigations across government, gives it a focus and a new lease on life that uh, is frankly going to create some energy uh, among their own workforce and I think Uh, uh, give the organization a chance to uh, possibly repair some relationships that might have been damaged over the course of the past few years in some some of these high-profile cases. So you bring up a really important point, um, especially for our audience. Former background investigators, current background investigators on the site, a lot of them have said that a lot of the issues are certainly administrative, but they're also workforce-related. So getting down in the nuts and bolts of the workforce, there's been a lot of debate about whether under NBIB or whatever the reform efforts ended up at, what that workforce will look like. You know, we went from having, um, you know, the DSS positions to having outsourced positions and a lot of contract positions. Some people are saying we need to go back to insourcing this workforce. 
Do you have any thoughts about what role workforce planning might play into how NBIB moves and what might be a best case scenario there as far as any changes to the workforce? The way that the FIS workforce is structured today with a combination of, of contractor uh, background investigators and federal background investigators, uh, I'm confident will continue into the NBIB. It's right and appropriate to have both federal employees and contractors providing background investigative services with the assumption that they're all trained to the same level, they all have the same quality standards, they all have the same, uh, you know, end objective, and that's, you know, providing great background investigations. So it's, I think it's good, and I think it will continue to see a mix of federal and contractor employees. Uh, in conversations that I've had with folks involved uh, uh, both at OPM and at other agencies, typically, you know, the federal workforce is going to be used for, you know, high-profile cases, perhaps certain cases that have uh, security or counterintelligence concerns that pop up, uh, and, and other types of investigations that would be just more appropriate for a federal employee to conduct. The contractor workforce, which is, you know, predominantly made up of ex-investigators on the federal side, right? I mean, there are very few contract investigators that don't have some type of military or federal service in their background. You know, that contractor workforce is absolutely essential to handle the the backlog of cases that are that have grown since USIS was terminated. Uh, it's essential to handling additional surges, uh, and it's also the most appropriate part of the workforce to shape uh, when budget pressures hit or there's a need to rapidly increase the number of investigators. So I think you'll continue to see that type of labor mix in the new organization. There's been talk about, you know, hey, we need to insource this whole cloth again. You know, we need to we need to create more of a traditional model like they had years ago where we have field offices getting that infrastructure back, whereas the contract workforce is largely a remote workforce. I can see the pros and cons of both arguments. I agree with you. They're probably not going to go from what they've done in sourcing everything. Yeah, I just I think, uh, one, completely insourcing the work into a federal workforce is completely unaffordable, uh, and it doesn't allow you the flexibility that the uh, the NBIB or the NBIB leadership is going to need to shape their workforce uh, easily. Uh, and two, you know, the presumption that a federal investigator on a routine investigation, uh, you know, could do a better job than a contract investigator, I'm not sure that holds water. I think uh, there are absolutely times when you want a federal investigator on a particular case, then that's reasonable and appropriate. But, you know, from a cost perspective, in the long run, the, uh, the contractor workforce is far, far cheaper uh, than, uh, than an entire federal workforce. So talking about a little bit about the, the political appointee and the structure, so they were very hesitant on the phone to mention anything related to timelines as far as when, when the rollout will happen, and that's understandable. But do you think that they can... We, we don't have a great track record of getting political appointees voted on and in place on, in anything. I mean, Congress has definitely been involved in this, the scrutiny of the background investigation process. So can NBIB successfully move forward without anybody getting, getting appointed to leadership in that position if that, if that ends up carrying over to the next administration? Or do you think that there's the momentum to try to – I haven't heard any names come up yet, you know, for me anyway – as far as if there's 
there's clear people involved that are already saying, hey, put me in charge of this, and, and Congress being behind that and getting that ball moving that quickly. The federal government has a long uh, history of uh, having dedicated career federal employees who can step up and lead an organization in an acting capacity. Uh, and that happens every administration change uh, when all of the politicals uh, begin to leave government, uh, you know, career uh, uh, public servants stand up and, and perform acting roles. So in answer to your question about can the NBIB stand up and get rolling, I, my answer would be absolutely. Uh, I would encourage the government to take their time on this appointment and do it right. I don't – I'm not sure – whether the current administration would be best served by rushing someone in, uh, trying to push them through the political uh, confirmation process, and then have them walking out the door, you know, six months later. I think that would create a lot of turmoil in the new organization, uh, and it would probably be uh, better for government to, uh, to just, you know, appoint an acting director. And there are plenty of career SES-level folks in FIS uh, you know, including Mert Miller, who would be fantastic for that role. Uh, so that's how I think that would go down. I think the, um, you know, we're in a very interesting time uh, in terms of the political cycle, aren't we? Because you've got the administration coming to a close, and you're going to see lots of uh, political start to jettison. Until the new administration is selected, you're not going to see much movement uh, and, you know, policy and, and other types of things that are going to be essential to, you know, standing up the NBIB and, and, and transferring funds and getting legislation through, supporting legislation, that. So I'm not sure how much you could actually see in terms of progress, uh, you know, until maybe a year from now or even longer, you know. I mean, uh, once the new administration's in place, it takes time to get their political appointees through. And, Regardless of the outcome, if a Republican or a Democrat wins, we've got a new administration coming in, and there just won't be a lot of holdovers. So I think it's going to be really interesting from a timing perspective. But as you said, it's hard to project what the timelines are going to be with all this uncertainty uh, on the political space. Yeah, and you kind of mentioned the timeline here, and I think it's, it's worth bringing up that the security clearance reform efforts we're looking at now, a lot of them, uh, people are tying them to the OPM breach, but we had multiple reviews of the security clearance process and reform efforts going on from Snowden to Aaron Alexis to like this is like the latest the latest one that seemed to trump all the others because it involved 20 million people. So <laughs> it's a good mobilization of of people. But the fact that the matter is security clearance reform has been around for I feel like forever as far as the timeline yeah it's hard it's hard i mean you've been in the industry a long time you've probably seen this come and go do you think there's more momentum now i'm seeing more because of the number of people affected by the breach but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's gonna move faster or slower no it sure doesn't i think uh security clearance reform is <laughs> it's a lifetime long initiative i mean there have been reforms made in the clearance process uh, continually since its inception. And every time a major espionage case uh, occurs, there are changes that are made to the, 
to the system. So when you go back and you look at the Aldrich Ames case, there was a renewed emphasis on financial reviews and investigation. Uh, when you look at the Manning case, there was a push to get social media brought into the uh, into the background investigation process as a source. So there's continual change. I think you're right. The loss of, of 25 million uh, people's private data is extraordinary. But I, you know, I think we have to remember that that wasn't a uh, that wasn't a criminal organization that stole the data. It was clearly an intelligence operation from another from another country. And so, you know, as as Director Clapper has said, shoot, if we could have gotten that data, we'd have gone after it in a heartbeat. So, you know, I don't I don't look at the at the breach as an indictment of the background investigation process or necessarily the organization. I think uh, every government agency is simply holding their breath, hoping that they're not the next ones to hit the news. You probably saw some reporting on the risks that would be involved in a Department of Education breach, where all of our student loan information and financial data and uh, and other information is held. I mean, that would be a breach that would eclipse the uh, the size and scope of what happened at OPM in a heartbeat and, and, and put a lot more people at risk financially. But Frankly, the, I think the, the breach was certainly the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of the administration's commitment to doing something different and creating some new entity uh, that turned out to be the NBIB. Shifting to the technology, as far as moving that technological oversight under DOD, what do you think of that and having DISA involved and, and that level of involvement? Is that Was that clearly the right move to get the technology piece out from under OPM? I'm not sure if it was clearly the right move. Um, I think that uh, the Department of Defense certainly has a history of, of strong cybersecurity, of uh, strong capabilities in systems development, and certainly uh, in this case the DOD stood up and said we're willing to take this challenge on. The road ahead is not an easy one, though, because DOD has to somehow ensure that they capture the requirements of the, you know, what the background investigation team at NBIB needs to do their job. There needs to be an understanding of how the current systems processes uh, work and how the data is transferred and manipulated and stored. So there's a ton of information that they have to know that they just don't have firsthand knowledge of. So while NBIB stands up, it's going to take quite a bit of, of effort on NBIB's part to educate DOD, the developers, and play a role in that development process. I'm, frankly, excited about the opportunity to support DOD in that development, though, because um, you know DOD has uh, a pretty strong reputation in agile software development, in data analytics, and mobility, and those are some of the key qualifications that Salient CRGT brings to the table, in addition to our exceptional understanding and experience with the OPM, uh, Federal Investigative Services, systems that, that are currently in existence. So, you know, I think the opportunity for industry to support DOD in this, uh, in, in this endeavor is, uh, is, is good, and, and DOD needs industry to... Uh, to up their probability of success on that, not only from a, you know, needing to understand what the as-is systems and processes 
uh, and data requirements are, but also what's the best way to go forward and, and build this system? I mean, do you want a, do you want a big waterfall uh, uh, monolithic development effort? Uh, those don't seem to go very well uh, you know, across government. Or do you want to try to break it up into more of an agile development process where you've got incremental delivery and continuous improvement and things like that? So there's some really neat possibilities on the horizon uh, for DOD, and industry needs to be in complete partnership with DOD and OPM on this because, frankly, from your clear jobs hat, we've got a lot to lose if this doesn't go right. You know, we, we have a tremendous number of cleared employees in industry that could be adversely affected if things aren't developed well and if the process isn't fixed. So on the other hand, if it goes well and we help DOD and we help OPM in developing the new system, we're going to benefit from that. We bring up a good point. I mean, we saw it at clearance jobs in the wake of the OPM breach that we had some of our job seeker workforce saying, hey, I'm going to shift back to the commercial sector for a while. It's not worth the headaches of being within DOD, but when you get these new contract vehicles and these new opportunities for partnership, you know, that's when government can kind of look to bring in that knowledge base of industry, you know, including some of that clear talent as well to help them innovate and do things a little better. Starting with encryption, I think, was the first step. Yes, exactly. I, I saw an article came out right afterwards, like, MBIB promises to encrypt the data. And I'm like, as a, as a clearance holder, I was like, well, thank you. Good, good to know. <laughs> I, you know, again, I, I think you, like me, you know, our, our data was compromised, and, and uh, I struggle with this because, frankly, the way that the adversary got into the data was using credentials from a legitimate user. So preventing that kind of attack from happening is incredibly difficult. And, again, I would say that every agency in government was breathing a sigh of relief that it wasn't them that was hacked this way because it's what you're taught to train your employees your workforce about don't succumb to phishing attempts, and yet it turns out people are the number one vulnerability when it comes to cyber security, right? Whether it's taping our username and password to the top of the laptop or using one, two, three, four, five, six. I'm just stunned at how often you see those kind of things. So even though the data wasn't encrypted, I don't know if that would have made much of a difference at the end of the day given the adversary stole the credentials of a legitimate user. But that's it, not, not an excuse. One of the things you mentioned, Lindy, is that people were turning away from clear job for some period of time. I am really, really interested uh, personally and professionally in data that supports that and, and even anecdotes that you see because there are other changes afoot in the clearance process. For example, I don't know if you've heard, but DIA and NGA – are both moving to full use of the ESS, the Expanded Scope Survey Polygraph, which is equivalent. It's not the exact same, but uh, there are some question differences, but it's essentially a full-scope polygraph. Now, what do you think the impact on the workforce of those moves is going to be? You've already got a limited number of people that hold a, a lifestyle poly or a, a full-scope poly or an ESS poly you know, whatever you want to call it, there's just some part of the population that won't apply for that polygraph because they don't like it, they don't want to submit themselves to it. So that's an example of other changes in the clearance process that, frankly, I think are going to affect the cleared workforce as much as, if not more, than a loss of personal data. But it's certainly in everybody's mind, you know, particularly when that new background investigation rolls around and you've had life changes, 
you know, maybe you have a child now and, and you're worried about putting that date of birth and full name and all that in the in the background investigation. So I'm very interested in what you've seen on that front. Yeah, well, we've been referring to it as the perfect storm at clearance jobs as far as our documents because we have the shifting where DOD in particular is cutting the number of clearances as a part of those overall security clearance efforts. So we're seeing, you know, a 15 to 20% reduction in the overall size of the cleared workforce along with some self-selection out of the workforce from some people just because the commercial sector pay has gotten equally as competitive whereas the lowest cost technically acceptable model for government over the past five years, salaries weren't necessarily as high. So we had a time in particular that very in-demand IT workforce was able to find, if I can make you know more money in the commercial sector and they can give me the kind of cool projects and there's just a lot of hassle with my clearance that I don't want to have to deal with. So I'm going to, you know, and we talk about this all the time because again, it's, it's hard to to break down the nuts and bolts of the data because there's, there are some people that just enjoy government work that like that mission first thing, you know, that want to, want to get it done for their country, they're not opting out. This is probably the smallest cleared workforce pool that I've seen, you know, in my, in my professional tenure. And, and the demand is just there that people are not, yeah, companies are having trouble finding and hiring and keeping cleared talent. I and mean, the competition for, for talent is, is pretty high. When I was a, uh, uh, in the security profession in government, I was all for, uh, changes in the in the clearance system like continuous evaluation uh you know and i just kept saying why on earth wouldn't we look at people as often as we could and then you know you get out into the workforce uh in industry and you hear from people that didn't grow up in the military or didn't grow up in a government culture uh talking about how that's uh you know not what they signed up for they they're they're willing to you know go through some level of scrutiny but impact of moves like continuous evaluation critics at their harshest call it big brothers constantly watching you and even folks that support it the words continuous evaluation has such a a harsh tone to it you know when you really peel it back so yeah i'm 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 like you i i worry that we're in or even heading toward an even more perfect storm thank you again for joining us for this episode of the security clearance careers podcast for more on opm and the nbib please visit news.clearancejobs.com Thank you so much.